seems like one of the fads in entertainment today or in movies is to talk about zombies or the walking dead. Those things that were, are, are dead, yet they are alive. And I really wonder, and maybe you might wonder too, would Jesus be entertained by zombies? I don't know if he would or not. But believe it or not, in a sense, Jesus encountered the walking dead. Look at Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, we find Jesus as he encounters another individual similar to those that we've encountered in the past in our study of Jesus. But notice what Mark chapter 5 tells us. Mark 5, verses 1 and 2. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he had got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. A little bit later on in the text, we're going to see that it calls him a demon-possessed man. But as we look at this story, there's some ambiguity here for us. as to the precise location of where this happens. Matthew's account says, or refers to the man or as being in the territory of the Gadarenes. And yet here in Mark, and also in Luke's account, it says the Gerasenes. And so Gadara was up here, close to the Sea of Galilee, and, and Gesera is down here. But really, both of these cities were prominent cities in a region known as the Decapolis, or the, or the region of the Ten Cities. They were kind of a confederation of cities that were Greek cities, or cities that were settled by Greeks, or promoted Greek culture. And, and they were in a confederation together to protect themselves from invasion, including invasion from the Jews, who lived on the other side of the Jordan River. But both of these cities were prominent Greek or Roman cities. In fact, one of the cities, Gerasa, was founded by Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great came into the area, and, and archaeologists have, have discovered a statue to one of Alexander's generals, uh, indicating that perhaps he had an integral part in, in founding the city. Gadara, on the other hand, would become a Roman colony, and yet as the Romans loved the Greeks and loved Greek culture, this was known as the city of culture in the Middle East, or what we would call the Middle East. Uh, several uh, influential Greek and Roman philosophers and, and other names from Greek and Roman history were actually originated or born in Gadara. And, and so as we look at these two stories, or at this story from Matthew's account and Mark's account, they're saying that this happens in the territory or the country uh, of these two cities. Each author chooses perhaps a different prominent city to indicate where this was taking place, to describe that happens out in the country of this political district. In fact, the word being translated country was often used to refer to a political district or region. So they're talking about different cities to describe the same political region. If you wanted to describe to someone where Mansfield is, would you say, oh, it's near Fort Worth? Or would you say, oh, it's near Dallas? Depending on your perspective, you might pick one of those two major cities. Because there's some folks in this country, they know where Dallas is, they know where Fort Worth is, but they don't know where Mansfield is. So you might say, well, this happened close to Dallas, or this happened close to Fort Worth. 
But as Jesus comes to this area, he's coming to an area that is heavily Greek, heavily pagan, involved with idolatry. This man is a man that is consumed with darkness. Because he lives in an area, he lives in a region in, in which there are cities where they know very little about the Jewish Bible or the Jewish God. They know very little about the Messiah. Now because they were so close to Israel, and for a period of time Israel had invaded these cities and had control of these cities, they had some inkling, they had some interaction, but these were Greek cities. These were Roman citizens, some of them. That's what they knew. This man didn't grow up worshiping Yahweh. This man wasn't familiar with the God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worshipped. This man wasn't aware of who Jesus is. But there's something else about this man. This man is consumed with darkness. Not only in the sense that he grew up in a place where he likely had no idea of God, but he's also a man that the text tells us had unclean spirits. Or we might say was demon-possessed. Think about your life. What it would be like if you grew up in a place that had no concept of God. And then on top of that, you literally had demons living within you. How dark your world would be. How consumed with darkness your life would be. Now when we read about demon possession, we're not talking about Hollywood demon possession. And those of you that have heard me talk about this before know that my go-to position is Rosemary's Baby. Remember that movie from the 70s? I think the baby had red eyes or something like that. You know, that's, that's how Hollywood thinks of demon possession. Or they think of the poltergeist. Or they think about the exorcist. You know, your head spinning and, and disgusting things. And, and people with, that are demon possessed being able to throw people across the room without even touching them. You know, that's how Hollywood portrays demon possession. They romanticize it, so to speak. But that's not demon possession as we see it. In scripture. And, and notice what this demon does to this man. Verse 3. He had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore. Even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him. And the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with the stones. Demon possession, as we see it in the New Testament, and what we see with this man, is that the demons torment the person whom they possess. They don't use supernatural powers to go out and do damage to other people. They damage the person with whom or, or in whom they live. Uh, this man was, was constantly abusing himself. The text says uh, he was found naked in, in the tombs. He, he's a man that's constantly shouting and screaming. He's in such agony. He, he takes oaths and he gashes himself. 
with the stones. Today, we might say he cuts himself or self-mutilates himself. This man was in a dark, dark place, not only because of where he came from with God, but he is filled with demons who want to destroy him, who want to abuse him, who do physical things of harm to him. And that's what we see in other places, in first century demon position that we see in the New Testament. Now, we're not going to go deeply into this today. That's not a point of our, of our discussion. But we've, I've studied that with some of you in the past, and we see that demon possession seems to be isolated to the New Testament as a way for Jesus and God to demonstrate His power over the realm of darkness, over Satan. And as we've seen with this man, that's how demons acted when they possessed someone. But as we look at the text, a little bit later on in the text... We find that the demons say, send us into this this herd of swine. Verses 15, following. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed. That is, the crowds came to him and saw that the man had been demon-possessed. But notice in verse 13, rather, it says, Jesus gave them permission, that is, gave the demons possession, uh, permission, and coming out of the... uh, Coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. If the demons went into the herd of swine, and there were about 2,000 swine in that herd, and they collectively went down, that man had 2,000 demons living in him? What's his life like? Can you imagine being that man. And yet it's not just this man whose life is covered in darkness. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all lived, formerly, in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul says that before we became Christians, this is where we lived. We were controlled by demons, if you will. Not in the sense that this man was controlled by demons, causing him to beat himself, gash himself with stones. But we lived under the influence, this text says, of the spirit of the air, of of, of Satan. Satan said, this is the standard of the world. And we lived by that standard. The world said, this is okay, this is proper, this is legitimate, this is fine. Do these things. And that's what determined what was right and wrong for us. And so we lived under that deception of of the devil. And because of that, Paul says, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. You see, we were the walking dead. That man that was demon-possessed was the walking dead. And that's where we all were. 
And that's where this man was. He lived in a dark place. The demons controlled his life. There are other demons today. Or things that control our lives today. And I know where the phrase comes from, but I suspect sometimes we hear people talk about today that they're fighting their own demons. That they get that phrase from passages like this. I don't believe those are real demons. But there are people that are struggling with drugs, with alcohol, with other types of addiction, or things that control their life. Even when they want to get away from those things, they can't. Because it's such a struggle. It's such a burden. And Jesus encounters a man as he comes here to the other side, to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and he encounters a man whose life is literally controlled by demons. And yet Jesus has mercy on this man. And I don't believe this man is a Jew because later on in the text we're going to see that that Jesus tells him to go to his own people, suggesting Gentiles. And remember, this is in a place that was predominantly Greek and Roman. And so Jesus has mercy on this man. Notice in verse 6. It says, Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. That is, the demon-possessed man did that. But it is the demons that that are controlling the man. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. You see, the conversation Jesus is having is with the demons within the man. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there is a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountains. And the demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out of the, un- the unclean spirits, entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And so Jesus is having this conversation with these demons. And they're saying, we recognize who you are. This is different from what Jesus did with the Canaanite woman, or, or with the blind men in which he is encountering people who recognize him as the Messiah. This man, as far as we know, in of himself, doesn't know who Jesus is. But the demons do. And as Jesus encounters the man, he has mercy on him. Jesus had three options as he encounters this man. One of those options was he simply ignored the man. Remember, this is a guy living in a Gentile area. Uh, not likely a Jew, but likely a Gentile. And just as we saw Jesus speak to the Canaanite woman, his mission was to go to the house of Israel. And yet here's Jesus again interacting and helping someone who's not Jewish. Jesus could have acknowledged him, but not helped him. Or Jesus could act. Of course, Jesus does act. The demons submit to Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the text says that they saw Jesus as he was coming? So the beginning of the passage begins by, by saying Jesus got out of the boat and immediately he was 
encountered or immediately this man comes to him. But as we read a little bit further down in the text, did you notice it said that the man saw Jesus as he was coming and he ran to him. The demons caused the man to immediately run to Jesus. Is there a confrontation? There is not a confrontation. There is not a conflict. The demons immediately submit themselves to Jesus. God demonstrates his power over Satan. And so the demons, they come to Jesus and immediately uh, they say to him, don't send us out of the country. Verse 7, don't torment us. And Jesus is telling them to come out of the man. And so they say, hey, send us into these swine. Don't drive us out of the country. And so it's not a struggle at all. But you see, Jesus heals the man. He drives the demons out of the man. Because Jesus has power over darkness. He has the power to change lives. And Jesus acted. Notice what happens to the man. Verse 14. The herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and about all the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. But he did not let him. But he said to them, Go home to your people and report to him what great things the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy, or how he had mercy on you, and he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Think about what has transpired here. Here is this man who is demon possessed, uh, who's living in darkness, who, who has no hope. He's in a hopeless state in life. And yet Jesus has mercy on him and drives out the things that are controlling his life. And because of that, this man's life is changed. Sometimes it's easy for us to treat people as though they are hopeless and helpless. The people in this man's life, before Jesus encounters this man, could not help the man, did not help the man, was afraid of the man. They tried to bind him with chains and with shackles, and the text says that no one could subdue him. They drove him away to the the tombs. And sometimes we encounter people in our lives that we look at them and we say, they are hopeless. They are helpless. They are so far gone. Can't you imagine the people living in the cities around where this man lived? When they looked at the man, they saw his state, they saw what he did to himself, they they, they heard him screaming and shouting, and they looked at him and they said, there is nothing that can be done with this guy. Just get him away from me. And sometimes we treat people that way. 
I don't imagine that we always intend to treat people that way, but sometimes we treat people that way. And yet God has the ability to work in their lives and to change their lives. If someone will just stop and serve and save. And again, we see that that's what Jesus does. Sometimes we may seem to be hopeless and helpless. As we wrestle with pain in our culture, as we wrestle with things in our lives, sometimes pain is caused by ourselves. One rash decision, one poor decision in our life can set a chain of events off in our life that causes us to have pain and suffering and struggle all of our lives. And if we could just go back and undo that one decision that started it all off, We would. Sometimes there are variables beyond our control that cause us to have pain and struggle and sorrow. But as Christians, sometimes it's easy for us to look at people where they are and it's just so easy to just write them off. But that's not what Jesus did with this man. Everyone else had written him off, but not Jesus. Jesus had the power and the authority to drive the demons away and to help the man, and that's what Jesus did. There are obviously people in our culture today that choose to live apart from God. And because they choose to live apart from God, there's nothing we can do for them. But we don't always know the difference. And so it's important for us to always take advantage of opportunities to share the message of Jesus' hope, of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, of talking about what Jesus has done for us. Jesus was capable and willing to act. And we don't necessarily have the, we don't have the ability to drive demons out. We may not be capable of helping every person with every struggle that they face in life. But we can show love. We can share the gospel. And we can encourage. Think about the end result of this man's life, how it was transformed. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. He wants to be a follower of Jesus. He wants to go along with Jesus. But he did not let him. But he said to him, go to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you, how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. This is one of the few instances in the New Testament where Jesus tells someone to talk about the miracle that has been done for them. In almost every other case, Jesus says, don't tell anyone the miracle I did for you. But this time, Jesus says, I want you to go and share that with everybody. And it could be because Jesus has been going to the house of Israel. Here's someone who's not a part of the house of Israel. And Jesus says, I want you to share that with all the Gentiles, with all the Greeks, with all the Romans in these cities. And as he does this, everyone in those cities look at the man. They say, isn't this the guy that's crazy? Isn't this the guy that beats himself up with, beats himself up with rocks? 
Isn't this the guy that goes around naked all the time? Isn't this the guy that lives out in the cemetery in the tombs? Look at him now. His life has changed. And they were amazed as they saw the man. Because Jesus took time. And Jesus showed him mercy. And Jesus says, that's the message I want you to share with everyone you know. Is God's mercy. How he had mercy on you. I want to tell you a true story. This man was a young boy. He grew up in a family that was a large family, an extended family. And in this family, he had an uncle that abused and took advantage. You understand. Not just him, but everyone else, all the other kids in the family. Somebody else did something to mess his life up. His life was messed up. People in the church knew this man. As he grew up, nobody in the church knew about what had happened. As soon as he became 18, his sisters became 18, his cousins became 18, they were gone. Nobody ever saw him again. Until they encountered him in the park where he was working as a volunteer firefighter. Began talking with him. Began loving him. He didn't want to step foot in the church building. They took him on a weekday evening. He said, just, just come to the church building. Just feel comfortable walking inside the doors of the church building. And that opened doors for him. No pun intended. But they showed him love. And over an extended period of time and months, this man became a Christian. His life has been changed. This man is now active in the church where he belongs. Does he get rid of the pain and the scars and the turmoil of his childhood? No. But his life was changed. Because instead of folks in the church saying, you're weird, you're damaged, you're no good, you're messed up. They said, we want to love you. As we think about the work of this church, that's the attitude that we can have. That's the attitude we must have to serve, to worship, and to grow. And so as we think about our work as this church, we can change lives. We may not be able to change every life. There may be some lives that don't want to be changed. But there are some lives that are willing for, to be changed with the gospel if someone is just willing to share with them and to love with them. And we can make a difference. We need to have Jesus' mercy. We do that by having a prayerful attitude and mindset. 
remembering Jesus' mercy as we encounter people from different walks of life and in different places in life, from, from different backgrounds in life, and being prayerful that God will give us the opportunity to touch those lives. And having a mindset, instead of looking at someone who's different from us or struggling with pain or just seems strange or just seems like they're different than me, Instead of letting that be our mindset, let us have the mindset of knowing God has given us a message of love and this person may want to hear it. And if I'm just kind to them and share with them and love them, there may be that opportunity to share that with them. We need to have a prayerful mindset. We need to look for those opportunities. We can't make someone change if they don't want to. We can't make someone repent and turn from sin in their life, but there are folks that are struggling and they would do anything for someone to be there to encourage them and to help them and to help them get past things in their life. So we need to look for those opportunities. We need to work patiently and encouragingly. Helping someone, especially someone who's deeply troubled, someone who's had a lot of pain in their life, someone who's struggling with a lot of sin in their life, may take someone being willing to patiently work with them over a long period of time. There are very few people that hear the gospel for the very first time and say, hey, yeah, let me become a Christian. For many people, it's a process. And we need to be ready to help them in that process. And we need to do it encouragingly. We know that people struggle, and as they do, they're going to have setbacks. And we need to encourage them as they seek God in their lives. And we need to take time to develop. We need to take time to develop leaders in our congregation. We need to take time to develop new Christians. Someone who is a brand new Christian doesn't know all the scripture. That's okay. They don't know all the lingo. They don't know all the things that those of us who have grown up in going to church are familiar with. And that's okay. To become a Christian, you recognize that Jesus died for your sins and was buried and was raised again and that when you become united with Jesus in baptism, your body of sin is done away with. You've crucified that body of sin and you walk in a newness of life. doesn't mean you know everything. doesn't mean that you are raised a, a perfect Christian. It's the beginning of your Christian walk. And as we mentioned in our Bible class this morning, Jesus said, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've taught you. And so we teach them those things, and we help them develop as Christians. But it all begins by having the same mercy that Jesus had for a man whose life was full of darkness. Maybe life is something that you wish it weren't, and you want it to be new. You want to be full of light full of brightness. You can do that by becoming united with Christ in baptism. Maybe there are other struggles that you're facing in life and you want the prayers of the church. But whatever you need, once you come, as together we stand and sing.